Samba, let's talk for a minute about the resurgent labor movement. We had a big victory last week. That's right, John. Negotiators for the Writers Guild of America and the big Hollywood studios reached a tentative contract agreement that ended the screenwriter's strike after 148 days. The contract agreement was unanimously approved by the WGA Executive Council and is now being voted on by the union's 11,000 members, most of whom are based in Los Angeles and New York City. If approved, the new contract will earn writers $233 million more per year than their previous agreement, according to Guild estimates, nearly tripling the offer that the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers first made. The contract includes a new viewership-based streaming residual and staffing and duration minimums for all filmed programs, including minimums and guarantees for streaming comedy variety series, which were not covered before. It also provides for strict guardrails on the use of artificial intelligence in the writing process. This is JT Allen, who I spoke with yesterday. He is a WGA strike captain in L.A. at Warner Brothers Studios, or rather he was at Warner Brothers Studio while the picket was going on. And he said that organization among strike captains and other organizers was a very key aspect in triumphing uh, a strong strike. So let's listen to him, JT Allen of WGA. We were able to hold out largely, actually there's three things I think. I think there was a great, I mean, just our solidarity, uh, our, our, the goals of our, uh, of the WGA were really clearly stated at the beginning of the strike. Uh, everybody realized the goals were really serious. Uh, and th- these were sort of the things that, and we called this a generational strike, uh, in the sense that there were things we needed to sort of keep, keep Hollywood going, honestly. And it were, some issues, were so important that that we really felt if we didn't win this strike, that Hollywood would become like this gig economy, and it would actually destroy the community of all these various uh, unions. And so we had clear goals. We had a great organization of the Writers Guild and the Captain System, and we were totally motivated by the fact that this was like a you know a win or die situation. Quite frankly, uh, we had to win this strike. We all felt that from the beginning. We had support from all kinds of people, all of the different trade unions, from the grips of the electricians, the sound, the musicians, uh, special effects people, all supported us and came out to the line to actually picket with us, uh, including like the teachers union and, and, and uh, hotel workers and teamsters and stuff like that. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And then now, from the perspective of anyone that's held out that long, what did it feel like to win? I mean, to win, <laughs> to, 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 you know, really win most of the contract demands. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it was. It, I can't even describe it. The elation was was amazing. I mean, honestly, you know, it, it, I don't know whether I'll ever have that exact same feeling again. It was. It was like winning a war almost. It just went like, oh my gosh, we survived. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a big scramble to get back to work for everybody. And uh, in terms of the enforcement, that part, you know, the Guild has, uh, as as an organization, is very good at enforcing things like residual collection. And so they'll, administratively, they'll figure out a way to enforce all the new stuff as well. And it's it's almost a, a joke, uh, you know, that you don't want to get the wrath of the WGA. They're scary. You know? <laughs> anyway, we still need to vote. I mean, in theory, people could vote against it and, and they'd go back negotiating. But, no, the, the voting actually starts today, Monday till next Monday, and I will vote uh, today, uh, right after I get up the phone call, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I think well, I, I'm pretty sure, not just pretty sure, I'm positive uh, that we will ratify it by, by very high upper 90s level. 
That was J.P. Allen, a Writers Guild of America strike captain, talking yesterday about his union's victory following a 148-day strike and what happens now. Right. That's an amazing accomplishment. Uh, and just to, uh, for a sense of the momentum we're seeing in the labor movement, uh, I was on the National Labor Relations Board website uh, yes, last night and poking around, and I saw that uh, yesterday alone there were uh, un- uh, 30 different union election filings for October uh, 2nd, 2023. Now, you don't get that many on every day, but uh, it was really striking. I mean, these were in uh, venues across the country with uh, workforces of anywhere from five to a thousand people. Uh, I mean, there were a couple of Starbucks uh, uh, coffee shops, but also uh, several places where uh, postal service employees were seeking to unionize, uh, some security guards. Uh, uh, several hospitals, uh, uh, nurses and other hospital employees, uh, just a, a wide array of people. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, we've seen, we saw the, the mobilization with the Teamsters earlier this summer and they won a big contract and excited to hear more about the, uh, UAW, uh, uh strike that we're going to talk about, uh, more with our next guest. But Amba, uh, you, in fact, uh, visited a United Auto Workers picket line yesterday in Tapan, New York, where members of UAW Local 3039 uh, have been on strike for uh, the past 10 days or so outside a uh, Chrysler uh, parts distribution center. Right, exactly. Uh, myself and a couple other members of members of the Indy were out there uh, talking to the workers. There were a few of them out there. They've been doing a twenty four seven picket line, so and they have constant shifts of um, a handful of guys, uh, and they're there all the time. They were there in the rain on Friday, and I think. You know, um, the thing that stood out the most to me, of course, was talking to a worker who said that when he got the job 30 years ago, he got the job because his mom and his uncle worked in the factory. And that was the only way you could in the part in the in the parts center. It's what's it's not really a factory. And that's the only way that you could get a job was by knowing somebody. And now from out of the 80 to 85 workers they have, they can they, they seem to always have around 10 positions filled because uh back then. It was a good paying job compared to the prices. And now you can get the same pay at McDonald's where you're not forced to work overnight because you're a new worker. Um, in addition, they spoke to some condition concerns within the warehouse, um, like terrible leaks every time it rains, which um, are, I think, difficult for them to wrap their heads around considering the uh, financial gain of, of, the, of Chrysler. Of right. These companies uh, are certainly making a lot of money, which is... Uh, Part of what's inspired this strike, people uh, want their their fair share of the wealth they're creating. Absolutely. So uh, now we're going to move on to our first guest. On September 15th, thousands of auto workers, uh, like the guys I spoke to yesterday, at Ford, GM, and Stellantis walked out on strike, marking the beginning of what the United Auto Workers Union is calling its stand-up strike, citing over a decade of concessionary contracts that resulted in minimum to no wage increases. The UAW's recently elected national leadership, headed by President Sean Fain, organized a staggered, or what they're calling a targeted strike, where instead of having all workers walk off, walk off the job at once, plants are striking in a domino effect. 
When the strike began on September 15th, around 13,000 workers walked out of three auto plants in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. Then on September 22nd, a week later, UAW President Fain announced 38 new strike locations targeting GM and Stellantis, saying all parts distribution locations for the two companies at cities across 20 U.S. states, including that one in Tippan, Rockland County. Ford was actually excluded at that time due to substantial progress at the bargaining table. Then on Friday, an additional 7,000 workers from Ford, from a Ford assembly plant in Chicago and a general, general motors facility in Lansing, Michigan hit the picket line as well, bringing the total number of striking workers up to 25,000. But this still leaves around 120,000 auto workers at the ready. So here to discuss the strike is labor historian Tony Gilpin. Gilpin comes from a proud UAW family and is the author of The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. Dr. Tony Gilpin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, John and Amba, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, welcome to WBAI. So first, I, I want to have you explain what the central demands of the union are, because you have the deep history with it. So in this strike, what what are the central issues? Um, well, I think John said earlier um, that uh, he sort of hit the nail on the head when he said um, that what these workers are looking for is a greater share of what they are owed. That's the sort of uh, umbrella um, uh, under which all their demands fall. Um, but, you know, they do have specific demands, the first of which um, is a big wage increase, and that Wage increase is that desire for that wage increase is driven by the simmering anger that I think all workers have been feeling for um, quite some time now about uh, the inequality we're experiencing in this country, the enormous um, corporate, um, the CEO salaries, the enormous corporate profits. Um, and uh, the, I mean, the big three just in the first half, the big three automakers just in the first half of this year uh, have made $21 billion. And yet, of course, they're, they're telling their workers that they can't afford um, decent wage increases. So the UAW advanced uh, an aggressive 40% uh, wage increase demand, um, but they're also seeking, um, and this is the other um, important element, to restore much of what has been, what they had lost um, in the concessionary contracts that have been imposed since the Great Recession of 2008, and, and frankly, even before that. So they're looking for um, a restoration of cost of living uh, increases, which used to be standard issue in union contracts and which um, with uh, inflationary pressures now are um, uh, really important to um, for workers to get, because obviously if you get a wage increase that's offset um, by inflation, then it really doesn't um, help you that much. Um, they're also seeking uh, to end the insidious tiered wage system where workers who are hired later are paid less and get um, uh, inferior benefits um, to workers who had been hired in, in decades before. I mean, ending those tiers, which have spread across um, uh, industry and into other um, corporate circles, um, is critical because it violates a key union precept to equal pay for equal work. Um, and it undermines solidarity among a workforce because different workers within a workplace will then have different interests, different um, needs. 
And, you know, the UAW is also, so those are the, you know, sort of big economic demands that the union is seeking. They're also um, looking for some things that speak to the viability of the UAW itself, to the viability of union um, representation. So they're looking for the right to strike over plant closures that have been so devastating to so many uh, communities in the Midwest and elsewhere. They're looking for um, uh, the extension of union representation at the new generation of electric um, vehicle plants that are being opened by these companies. Um, they've also advanced a very bold um, demand for 30 um, uh, hours pay for 40 hours work. And uh, taken together, these demands seek not just to compensate auto workers more fairly, they also are looking to make the workplace a more humane setting, and they're also looking to challenge management's heretofore unfettered right to determine how work is done, how fast it will be performed, and whether in the case of plant closings and representation at the new um, electric vehicle plants, whether these will be decent jobs at all. Um, so settling on the wage question, I think, will be the easy part. Um, these other issues related to management control um, will be where the real struggle is going to take place. And what is the theory behind the staggered strike approach that they're taking, uh, what they're calling this targeted approach? How are different groups like workers, companies, and the public responding to it. Well, and, um, and yeah, and what's the theory behind it? I know I said that. But. Right, right. Um, I mean, first of all, it's a, a few things. First of all, this is an unprecedented uh, uh, action. They're, the UAW has never gone on strike against all three auto, big auto companies at once. Uh, um, and this notion of striking only a few plants and being secretive about which plants they're going to strike and gradually increasing the number of workers on strike. Um, those are new tactics that the union has not engaged in before. It's also sort of introducing to the public, uh, to the labor movement and to workers in general, uh, the fact that this is a new UAW. This is a bold, aggressive, innovative UAW, which has not been the case for uh, many decades. And the strategy, um, at least in theory, offers the advantage of preserving union resources. The union gives, um, the UAW provides strike benefits for striking workers. Um, if all of its members at the big three were on strike at once, that would tax that strike fund pretty quickly. So this um, allows them to conserve their resources. It also keeps management guessing, keeps them off guard about where the strike is going and how many workers are going to be involved in it. And it also offers the opportunity to engage and energize a rank and file uh, that hasn't been particularly um, involved in union activity in all kinds of new ways. So, and to introduce what is a very new union leadership to this rank and file. So that's the theory, I think, behind um, this very new strategy. It certainly captured a lot of media attention, which is another um, important element of um, this strike. And, uh, you know, we have to wait and see ultimately uh, how successful it's going to be. But um, it is uh, something that is certainly galvanized a lot of attention and I think is probably um, exciting the rank and file and all kinds of the union in all kinds of new ways. Right. I mean, these uh, weekly uh, Friday 10 a.m. announcements of uh, where the next strikes are going to happen, uh, 
mean, it's become a bit of a, a, a media spectacle. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's almost like a, a sports contest. You know, where's the next, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> playoff game going to be or something. And, uh, so yeah, it seems to be working, uh, in, in that sense pretty well. But I want to ask you, um, about the UAW's recent history, uh, up to this point, um, including the, uh, 2019, uh, corruption scandal in the ensuing democratization of the union's national voting process. Uh, the UAW, uh, was controlled by something called the administration caucus, uh, going back at least to the 1940s, really, um, you know, this very top down operation. Can you kind of talk about how the UAW, uh, sort of calcified over the years and, and what sort of finally, uh, shook things loose in the last few years? Right. I am, but mentioned that, um, I grew up in a UAW family. My father was a, a UAW staff member, um, and earlier had been with a union that organized the Farm Equipment Workers Union, which is, uh, which was a, a radical alternative to the UAW and the subject of the book that Amba mentioned that I wrote. Um, so I would say that for, Longtime UAW watchers or members or family members who have, uh, who have a long, uh, memory of the UAW. Um, what's happening right now with this strike and in the UAW is almost unthinkable, frankly. Um, uh, the union had been so mired in corruption and complacency, uh, and the top leadership of the union had for so many decades been committed to an ethos of labor management cooperation, had long ago abandoned any display of militancy, but because, uh, John, as you mentioned, the this sort of um, uh, complete control exercised by that top leadership through this sort of Byzantine uh, governance structure of the UAW, it seemed impossible to challenge that, to um, to uh, ever shake things up within the UAW. Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, even though I've, I, as I said, I've been around the UAW all my life, this is like an, an exciting and, and really surprising development, but I should, but I should. You've got a huge smile on your face as you talk about this. <laughs> well, I, and I, but as a historian, I should, I should have known that this is, is, was, was possible because there's sort of two things that, that are true within labor history or many things, but two of the things that are true within labor history is that, you know, organizers, even when they're faced with what seemed like insurmountable obstacles, engaged in what, what, what feel like pointless, isolated struggles are sending out, you know, ripples that, um, can have, uh, unforeseen effects years or, or decades later. Um, and that's, you know, to switch metaphors, that's the, the famous phrase from the Haymarket, uh, martyr August Spees about, the ever smoldering subterranean fire, you know, worker discontent, worker, um, anger is always there. Um, and so the other thing that's true, um, in history is that things can also, that seem, uh, uh, when things seem at their most um, depressed and uh, unchangeable, things can break loose in a heartbeat and movements can leap forward in short periods of time. And so, uh, and organizers need to be ready for those moments. And that was true in the 1930s with the breakthrough of the CIO when the UAW was um, first formed in the midst of the despair of the Great Depression. 
And what's happening now within the UAW happened because there was a small group, really small group of devoted reformers, some of whom have been at this so long, they've long since retired from their um, union jobs and uh, but are still committed uh, UAW retirees. They didn't abandon what seemed like a, a hopeless um, cause and kept up the agitation for change. And so when a government investigation launched under the Trump administration, no friend of labor, um, started looking into this sort of rampant corruption, financial corruption, dues stealing at the top of the UAW leadership, those um, reformers were there to push for the notion that the answer to this was not a government takeover, but to allow for the first direct election of union officers in UAW history. Let the members decide who should be leading them. Um, so this small group, once the government conceded to that, to this direct election, then continued to organize to promote um, the kind of militant leadership that would really represent a new change within the UAW. And so they, you know, really organized within the rank and file. And through their concerted effort, we saw the election just very recently of um, Sean Fain, who hardly a household word, um, not even, um, uh, you know, his name probably not even known to most, um, to many UAW members before this campaign began. So, again, something like that seems to happen overnight, seems to happen like in a heartbeat, but it, it happened because there were some tireless um, and dedicated uh, uh, folks within the UAW who who didn't give up and who were, were there when the moment um, presented itself. Right. And talk a little bit about the formation of the UADW, the basically progressive caucus uh, or unite all workers for democracy in 2019 and the relationship of that to the election of Sean Fain, who seems to be more, you know, rank and file oriented than um, many of his predecessors. Right. Um, well, and that's the, you know, that is the group, uh, you know, UAWD, the United Work, Unite All Workers for Democracy, um, the notion of democratizing the UAW central to this cause, as well as, you know, injecting new energy, new, um, militancy within the union and, and rejecting the kind of, um, labor management cooperation that had been characteristic of the union before and that had brought the union those, those, um, horrid concessionary contracts. So this was that small group, um, a kind of a, a ragtag band of, you know, workers. Some of, I know, um, Scott Hudelson, who is one of the leaders of UAWD. It comes out of the Ford plant in Chicago that just joined uh, the ranks of those who are now striking last, um, Friday. Um, and, you know, some of these folks go back to the, even as far back as the, as the efforts within what was called the New Directions movement, um, back in the 80s to try to reform the UAW that seemed, you know, that was that was beaten back by the administration caucus and that seemed to 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 utterly um, peter out. But again, you know, those ripples were still there. Uh, they were reaching out to uh, union members across the country, beginning what they called the auto worker caravan, which was a which was just a, a you know, sort of a, a, a committee that that reached out to other workers and tried to carry forward this message of the necessity for democracy and the need for new militancy. And that combined, obviously, with this upsurge in worker activism, generally with um, with an increasing uh, uh, anger among uh, working people in this country about um, the way in which they've been 
treated, the um, the disrespect and the um, and the inequality that they're subjected to, and the and the and the increasingly horrible, as you mentioned, Amba, working conditions that um, that factory workers um, are subject to, along with just about everybody else who works for a living in hospitals or colleges or um uh or department stores wherever um so um but again i guess the the bottom line here is that um this this is a remarkable um example of how a small group of determined reformers committed to a just cause um are now seeing the fruits uh of their labor's payoff right and uh, also if you can talk a little bit more about the evolution of the United Auto Workers, this iconic uh, union uh, from the 20th century, uh, the the upper Midwest was ravaged by deindustrialization in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, and really onward. Uh, and at the same time, the union expanded into other areas, into higher education, um, uh, representing workers at universities, at nonprofits, at cultural centers. We have eight UAW locals here in New York City, none of which are auto worker locals. Um, can, can you talk about uh, that evolution and how that's uh, uh, driving things as well within UAW? Right. Well, um, I think the uh, you're right that they're sort of coupled. Obviously, when I was um, growing up within the UAW, my father died in 1979. I tell the story in my book. That was the, the, the high point of UAW membership. It had over one and a half million members. So it was, you know, at the height of its membership, the height of its political influence, the height of its strength, even though we were already beginning to see, uh, deindustrialization, um, plants moving either south, um, away from the northern and heavily unionized areas into the, uh, non-union South or out of the country altogether. Um, so we've, we're now at a point where the UAW, uh, went from that high point of one and a half million members to about 400,000 today. And a, a quarter of them, I, I believe I read are now, um, graduate students. So, uh, you know, we used to have a union, uh, that was almost entirely made up of industrial workers in, um, in the auto and aerospace and farm equipment industries. And now it's a union that, um, has an increasing number of, uh, workers not anywhere near, um, a factory setting. So, um, that reflects the change in, uh, in manufa- the manufacturing decline in this country. The fact that unions are, um, moving into new areas. Um, the fact that there are workers at places like college campuses who are demanding, um, to be represented by unions. And so these, um, unions like the, the, the UAW and the United Electrical Workers are moving in to, um, to meet that. But it's, um, it's a change, uh, that, that has come about in large part because of the changes in the economy. But I would note that even though um, it's it, it, it's it's great that, that graduate students are organizing. I have a daughter who's a graduate student at the University of Chicago and a new member of the United Electrical Workers. Um, we still have uh, over a million. There are a million workers in the United States engaged in in auto manufacturing. There are only four hundred thousand. UAW members, so and 25% of those are graduate students, so do the math. There are a lot of people engaged in auto manufacturing in this country who still need to be represented by a union. So we need to see 
the UAW, this new energy that's being brought into the UAW. And I'm, I'm, I am certain that they want to do this at the, at this, from this new leadership as well. We want to see, um, uh, those auto workers who are often in the South or in small parts plants. Um, we want to see those, those folks, um, organized and represented by union as well, because if they really need unions to, um, to fight for them, not just for their, for um, wages and benefits, but for um, decent shop floor conditions. Right, right. And so in our last minute here, Tony, um, I just want to turn a little bit back to the past. In 1968, in response to a work speed up at a Chrysler, formerly Dodge automobile plant in Detroit, a black worker, General Gordon Baker Jr., led 4,000 workers out of that plant in a wildcat strike. And so talk, you know, briefly about the black workers struggle that then ensued and the formation of Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, known as DRUM, and the subsequent formation of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and how that relates to today, because that was all, sorry, that was all under the auspices of, of the UAW. <laughs> yeah, and, and in a minute, it's hard to, it's hard to talk I about. Know. This, I know, I guess, briefly. Just give us yeah, the I mean, I think, well, Let me just, yeah, get to, you know, look at the, the photos and the film clips that we're seeing from picket lines uh, from the UAW strike right now and see how many black workers are involved. And, you know, Detroit, obviously a center of auto production, it still is, um, and a heavily African-American workforce there. Um, the UAW has always, um, and, and you, you know, unions now, more black workers are represented um, you know, percentage-wise in unions than white workers. Um, so the UAW and unions have been a way for um, African Americans in this country to um, to grapple their way into uh, that middle class. That being said, black workers, as the last hired in many of these plants, were also relegated to um, the worst jobs. And as the UAW had conceded to management the right to um, to pretty much establish all working conditions, control over how work was done, how fast it was done. It was black workers in uh, those plants who often bore the brunt of um, this, the, the, the um, increasingly immiserated shop conditions, which is part of what led to um, the uprisings in Detroit um, from black workers who felt that the union was was not representing them, was not speaking for them. Uh, and they fought to make uh, the UAW um, more inclusive, more representative, um, and, you know, and, and had limited success. <laughs> but but um, part of that long history is part of sort of a union, you know, and I think this current union leadership, I hope, recognizes that one of the important tenets of solidarity is that has to be practiced on a regular basis, that workers have to uh, engage with each other in struggles against management to see who their real enemies are. Um, and unions that only go on strike once every decade um, are not uh, doing right by their own members are not are not encouraging that kind of practiced solidarity that you that are essential to strong unions. So um, I think in terms of um, what we need to see for um, to to combat racism, to confront racism within the working class, we need strong unions, but we need unions that practice that kind of solidarity. Um, so going all the way back to the 
the 60s struggles from black workers, you know, black workers uh, were, were, were deeply involved in the formation of the UAW in the first place. They were involved in the reform efforts. They were involved in trying to make the union itself um, more representative and, and here, workers on the shop floor, the demands that they had to, to, um, to exert greater control over conditions of work. Um, so I think all of those things, you know, there are many important books and ways for people to read more about this, but, you know, um, I think it's encouraging to see the kind of, um, of, uh, solidarity we're seeing practiced on the picket lines right now. Um, the, the new, uh, generation of graduate students can learn a lot from these union veterans who, um, and I think the union veterans can learn a lot from the new energized young graduate students. So, um, it'll be an interesting progression, um, for this union. Right. Well, thank you so much, Tony Gilpin, a labor historian, for joining us on WBAI with the Independent News Hour. And uh, we'll be looking forward to continue to check in with you as the strike progresses. And thanks and keep up all of your good work. Thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be right back.